righty, good morning, church. Morning, church online. Great to have you guys here joining us today. Um, if you have your Bibles, and I'd encourage you to follow along open in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6 today. Last week, we began examining the disciples' prayer, better was known as the Lord's Prayer, which is found in verses 9 through 13. Matthew chapter 6, and here in uh, his gospel, Matthew is presenting for us the king, King Jesus, and in chapters 5 through 7, the king is giving us the standards of his kingdom, and he gives the standards of his kingdom in contrast to the supposed standards of the day. This is the way then a true son or daughter of the king lives not as the Jews of this time. So I want to begin this morning and, and start in verse 5 so we can set that in our mind, the full context of this passage as we are right in the middle of Jesus' incredible Sermon on the Mount. And right in the middle of his sermon, Jesus addresses for us how a son or daughter of the king ought to pray. So he says in verse 5, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, so that they may be seen by men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as heathens do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Um, these two spiritual activities which are to be unceasingly a part of the believer's life. And two great pillars we spoke of last week that hold up the believer in our daily walk with Jesus. First is the study of God's word, and then alongside that is prayer. And we see this confessed by the apostles in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. They said, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Prayer is us speaking to God, and studying the word is God speaking to us. And so the Bible speaks that we're to be doing unceasingly both. Constantly feeding on the word of God, constantly daily responding in communion and prayer with God. All the way back in the Old Testament, we see the declaration of God's law was to be recorded by man and written onto his heart so that man would talk of the law when he sat up and when he stood up when he was laying down and when he was walking along the road that man according to Psalms chapter 1 delights in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates on them day and night the law of God then was to be a matter of his thoughts and a matter of his conversation all of the time. <laughs> and so it is with prayer. The apostle prayer says pray without ceasing. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. And then while Paul was in prison, he instructs the church in Philippi to be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
to let your request be made known to God. So we are to be praying at all times. We are to be studying the word at all times, taking it in, meditating on it, and then sharing it with others. Those two things then become the consuming elements of the life of a believer. Hearing God's word as he speaks to us and speaking to God in our own heartfelt poured prayers. But our focus today at this time is on prayer. And our Lord stops here in just the midst of his discourse as he compares the false standards, the insufficient ways of the scribes and the Pharisees with the true standards of the kingdom of God. And he interjects a, a word of instruction to all who call on his name here in chapter 6 in order that they might know how to pray. Prayer is a very important thing, and if it's a way of life for us, then it is needful that we understand how it is that we ought to pray. In fact, this very same model of prayer is also given in Luke, 12, uh, in, Luke in response to the question, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, in our last study, we noted that the major thrust of this prayer is that it focuses on the glory of God. And that is fitting because first and foremost, that is what all prayer is to do. Prayer is not me getting what I want. Prayer is affirming the majesty and the sovereignty of our God. And we saw in John chapter 14, 13, our dear Lord says that whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So uh, prayer becomes the, the instrument in which the majesty of God is put on display. It is that God may be glorified. All prayer then, first and foremost, focuses on God. And this prayer is certainly no different. So let's look at the prayer. Last week we started at the beginning of verse 9 and we covered God's paternity. And that means is that God is our Father in this prayer we see in verse 9 in this manner therefore pray our father who art in heaven this is the the basis by the way of our boldness to prayer is it not we go to god because he is not only our king and he is not only our judge and he is not only our creator he is also our father And that beautiful expression gives us the sense of access and the boldness to come intimately into his presence as a son or daughter would go to their own earthly father. Isaiah 64 verse 8 shows us the beauty of this. It says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hands. That's the recognition. Father, you, you knitted me in my mother's womb. Uh, you gave me life. You, you supply with me uh, all of my resources, Father. We belong to you as, as adopted children through Jesus Christ. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. God's children so when I come to God in prayer, I come to him first and as my father. Very different than the pagans of this time who came to their gods and goddesses who were vengeful and angry and, and violent, whom they had to come to to appease in some way. We don't have to appease God. We come to him as our loving father. In the next chapter, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says in verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, why is gives us an illustration starting verse 9? He says, what man is there among you who, if his son asked for bread, would give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? In other words, our confidence and our boldness in coming to God and and whatever is on that heart of yours as you seek him is based initially on the fact that he is our father. He is our heavenly father with all the resources of heaven. Takes good care of his children according to his perfect will. There is an intimacy of love in God being our father. It settles the matter of loneliness. We have him as our father who will never leave us and never forsake us. Therefore, we pray our father in heaven. And we covered this truth in more detail last week, but for time's sake, let's move on to the to the second half of the verse in verse nine. And I called it God's priority. God's priority. It says uh, in verse nine, then our father in heaven Hallowed be your name. Here is the first petition in the prayer, and and the essence of this petition is worship. And that's what God's priority is. He's seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, when Jesus says, hallowed be your name here, he, he says something that's so full and so rich and so inconceivable that I could never exhaust fully what it is that he means here because it encompasses all of God's perfect nature. But what does that mean, hallowed be your name? Halloween, they get from hallowed. What is hallowed? That simply means all that God is. Now, in this first century Jewish culture, the name, The name of someone was, in a sense, uh, the sum of who they were. Uh, In Hebrew, your name carried a lot stronger of a meaning. Our names still carry a sense of meaning today. My name is more than just a name. It sums up who I am. If someone says to you the name Nick Davis, there's there's an image of who I am to you. And so it is with God. But God's name signifies infinitely more than any of his endless titles that he has. God's name is the sum of all that he is. He's just saying, blessed be your name. The name. It represents his nature and his attributes and his character and his will. And so what this petition is saying is, Father, may your person, may your identity, may your nature Oh, God, be hallowed. But what does that mean, that God's name is hallowed? It it comes from the Greek word hagios, and it means to be set apart. It means to be sacred. It means to regard and to treat as holy. Holy is our God. The cinnamon is where we get the word glory from. So it means to glorify, it means to sanctify, to honor, and to exalt the name. Father, may your name be elevated as sacred. Father, we we glorify your name. Holy is the name of our God. Uh, Worthy is the name. Worthy. Jesus is teaching us, start your prayers from a place of reverence and holy awe before we just go running right into the throne room of a holy God. Recognize first, Father, whatever honors you, whatever glorifies you, Father, whatever exalts your name. And and now, see how different that is than just the name it and claim it prayers? Give me this, Jesus, give me that, and I declare it in Jesus' name. What? Jesus, no, in this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May may your name be lifted up, Father. May your name be glorified, Father, in this prayer. And the names of God that we see in Scripture are endless. Elohim, creator God. El Elyon, the God of Most High. 
Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Nisei, the Lord our banner. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Royal, uh, our Lord, our shepherd. Uh, Jehovah Shema, the Lord is present. And his names are endless, but they all speak to the reality of all that he is. Oh, the blessed name of God. So when we say, hallowed be your name, we are saying, may God be glorified. And our God, oh boy, he's a jealous God. And he says, thou shall have no other gods before me. The priority of every prayer then is God would be highly exalted and lifted up wherever he may be. My prayer is God that you would do this. Do this, Father, so that it would bring you glory, O oh God. You might be praying about your child. Father, draw them to you so that your name would be glorified through this miraculous thing. You might be praying for a physical ailment. Lord, uh, whatever will bring you glory. Whatever will lift up your name in this healing, Lord. Whatever cause you to be exalted, heal in the name of God. Whatever will draw people to you to see you as the one true God. Do that, God. Do that. And if you're praying for that child or you're praying for that healing, you pray in faith that he will. So, when I say, hallowed be your name, I'm saying, God, uh, glorify yourself. And, and what do I mean by that? God, put yourself on display, Father. And how's he going to do that? I'm asking through my life, through my prayers. Put yourself on display through me, God. Would you do that? Would you, would you use me? Whatever that means to my life, if it's in poverty or in wealth, if it's in riches or in I'm broke, in sickness and in health, in life or in death, whatever it is, let the world see your glory, Lord, and put yourself on display. Use me, Lord. Send me. That's my prayer. And it's not that we simply know God's titles, that we love him and trust him, because we know him intimately. It, it, it's grown into a real dependent relationship as father and son, as, as father and daughter. We've come to know him. We, we know his character. Psalm 9, verse 10 says, and those who know your name will put their trust in you. Did you hear that? Those who, who know your name. Now, if we just take a, a, that concept of a name just to mean a, another word or, or just some title, does everyone who knows the word God trust in God? Of course not. It's ridiculous. But those who know his name and his many names, those who experience the fullness of who God is, oh, they trust him. They trust him. Listen, beloved, when the, the, the blinders come off and you see God for who he truly is, you will trust him. Oh, you will trust him. And that's the essence of, of what it means in Psalms 910 here. Those who know your name, the ones who, who know you in, in all of your wonderful ways, God, those are the ones who will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Another great promise. That's the gospel truth. When you come to, to know all of who he is, you will trust him. You will trust him. And once you see this in the Psalms, it just starts popping up all over the place. For example, in Psalm chapter 7, verse 17, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praises to the name of the Lord most high you see how our, our worship is informed by his righteousness when we know who god is and what he has done and what god still is going to do when we experience firsthand his grace and his mercy and his compassion 
as we see God actively working in lives. Oh, we hallow your name. Oh, yes, we do. We sing praises and lift up that name. I've seen you work, God. You are the Lord, the Most High. In Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, it says, Some boast in chariots. Some boast in horses. We might not have chariots and horses. That can be our houses and our cars. But we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. But I think the key verse and understand what it really means to hallowed be your name is found in John chapter 17 verse 6. John chapter 17 verse 6. Jesus is praying to his heavenly father. He prays in verse 6 to his father. Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me. Wow. What, what, what does Jesus mean? He's manifested the father's name. He's saying, I have revealed who you are, Father. I have revealed who you are. It's John chapter 1, verse 14, all over again. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. What glory did they see? The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he perfectly manifested God. Oh, we beheld his glory. The glory of the Father and the person of the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said to Philip, have I been with you so long and yet you do not know me, Philip? He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever seen me has seen the Father. Everything that the Son of God did on earth manifested God's name perfectly. He was the embodiment of the name of God. He is the manifestation, the human disclosure of all of who God is perfectly in the Son, Jesus Christ. And I know we just read a portion, Philippians 2, our Thursday discipleship group spent some time there, and I'm glad uh, Chuck read some of it this morning it touched his heart touches my heart every single day that i read these verses we see christ in philippians chapter 2 humbling himself he becomes obedient to even the point of death even death on a cross and it was for that very reason then that god highly exalted him and he has given him the name the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so his name is not just some title that we know, those names are infinitely glorious. His name is a total. His name is all of who God is. Hallowed be your name. It's not just some empty, casual phrase that we would throw up to God periodically in some kind of a, a ritual. This is a way we approach God continuously in prayer and, and hallowing God's name like every other manifestation of righteousness begins with a heart that's changed. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. The word um, translated sanctify is the same word for hallowed. Hagio, hagiazo. And, and so, and when we sanctify Christ in our hearts, well, we will also sanctify him in, a, in our lives. But how do we do that? How do we sanctify Christ? God in our lives. How do we hallow God's name in our lives? Number one, we start by hallowing his name by recognizing God for who he is. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And he is rewarded of those who diligently seek him. But not just that. There are plenty of people who will say, I believe in God. I believe in God. But they don't hallow his name because number two, we can hallow God's name by having a true knowledge of who God is. Origen, one of the very early church fathers, wrote this in the second century. Quote, the man who brings into his concept of God ideas that have no place there takes the name of the Lord God in vain, end quote. I would agree with that. Discovering and believing truths about God demonstrates our reverence towards him. However, willfully ignoring or accepting false doctrines and teachings demonstrates irreverence. We, we cannot revere a God whose true character and will we know nothing about. If we believe uh, Jesus was just some prophet, or Jesus is a God that was created, as the Mormons do, that Jesus cannot save. You can believe in him all you want. It's a different gospel. And certainly God's name is not being hallowed. It's not him. It's somebody different. But then just acknowledging God's existence and having a true knowledge about him isn't enough to really hallow God's name. We must, number three, have a constant awareness of the presence of God. Something that is actually living with us in the day. The spirit of God that dwells inside of us. A living, active presence and communion with God. Having reverence for, for God maybe once a week for an hour on a Sunday. Does that hallow his name? Ugh. To truly hallow his name, we must be consciously, consistently seeking after him, drawing to him and towards him in communion. David put the focus of his life where it should always be, communing with God. He said in Psalm 16, and I love this, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Me and God are right here, right now. But I believe the Bible shows us the Father's name is most hallowed and he is truly glorified when I live in obedience to his perfect will. When Jesus is Lord over my life, for me to live my life in disobedience to God, yet I claim Jesus as my Lord, is for me to, again, I feel, take his name in vain. I'm abusing the lordship of God by claiming he is my Lord. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does what? The will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. The Bible says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. That's hallowing his name. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, We want to let our light shine before men. He said, in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's do that. Let's do that. Psalm 34, verse 3, sums it up perfectly for us. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. That's a call for the church. Let's magnify the Lord, shall we? Let's exalt the name of God together. That's, that's God's priority, that his name would be hallowed. Hallowed be your name. Let's turn our attention to verse 10 and, and God's plan. God's plan. And look at how verse 10 opens. And this might be my favorite part. Your kingdom come. Just, <laughs> just an incredible statement here. Your kingdom come three simple words three simple words in english three simple words in the greek and yet they open up for us something that's so vastly beyond what we could ever really conceive all that's contained in this simple statement and yet someday beloved those of us who are in christ will have all of eternity to understand the measure of what god means here we pray your kingdom 
your kingdom. To the one who has the right to rule and reign his kingdom, who is none other than the king himself, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire should be to see the Lord reigning as king of his kingdom. To have all that honor and glory we see praising in heaven. That has always been his, but has not yet come to be fully claimed. God the Father seeks this. So when you pray, your kingdom come, you are praying this in accord with the Father's will. We read in Psalms chapter 2 verse 6, the Father says, Yet I have set my king on the holy hill of Zion. We see here that the Father exalting his son, the king. He then goes on to say, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, or Lord, to my Lord, you are my son. These are one of these dual prophecies. Look at this. Today I have begotten you. That looks to the cross. Ask of me, and I will give you the nation for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Just an amazing prophecy here as we see the Father declare all the nations as a love gift to the Son, okay? So then when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I'm really in an affirmation relinquishing the rule of my own life, and I'm saying to God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ within me, you take control. I submit my life to Christ's rule. You do what you want for your glory, God. And beloved, when you do that, oh boy, you bring yourself into an immediate confrontation because our own human nature screams of its own will to be done. That's why Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Every day, I have to be intentionally asking the Spirit of God, deny that flesh of mine. Oh boy, oh beloved, if we could only be preoccupied with the things of God and not myself, because if that was true, then we would begin to value the things that would be valued for the kingdom. And no man could ever take that away from us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is right now in heaven. We pray for God's kingdom. The kingdom over which Christ and Christ alone is Lord and King over. Now let's talk about this word kingdom for a moment. Um, What do we really talk about when we pray your kingdom come? Now first of all, the kingdom of God was at the heart of Jesus' message. This is all Jesus was talking about. He's preaching about the kingdom. Uh, Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, Jesus begins his ministry. It says Jesus began to preach and he says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Huh? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then you jump over to to Luke chapter 4 verse 43. Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. Because for this purpose I've been sent. In other words, whatever this kingdom is, this is at the very heart of Jesus' message. I must Preach the kingdom of God. This is the purpose I've been sent. Wow. Because, beloved, this is the heart of the plan. This is the heart of the plan. The reign and rule of Christ is the apex of all of human history. In Jesus' three and a half years of earthly ministry, he was preaching nonstop about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. He went around preaching the message of salvation as the entrance to God's kingdom. Even during the the 40 days, the 40 days that Jesus remained on the earth before his ascension, after his crucifixion, Acts 1 tells us that Jesus spent that time talking to his disciples about the kingdom. So Christ was all about the kingdom, but what is the kingdom? Well, the word used for kingdom, um, basileia, is the actual word, and it means to rule or to reign. And I, I... Honestly, sometimes I wish that that word would appear translated as reign, R-E-I-G-N, because I think that sometimes to us, the kingdom doesn't, what do you think of when you think immediately of the kingdom? Um, 
kings and, and shining armors and knights and castles and horses and, I don't know, maybe you think of the Magic Kingdom or Disney World. We, we can't think of the kingdom in, in, in any other terms because that's the world's perspective. In fact, that's why when Pilate looked at Jesus, he said to him, are you a king? Oh, where, King, where's your kingdom? It didn't make any sense to him. The, the, the implication is, is what kind of king are you? I mean, who, whoever saw such a king as you? Plain, there's nothing special about you. To which Jesus replied, my kingdom is not of this what? World. Okay. So, when we're praying for God's kingdom to come, we're praying, let the reign of Christ come, Father, on earth as it is right now in heaven. Now, Jesus spoke of the kingdom in three ways. We see this, past, present, and future in Scripture. He spoke of the kingdom as past, for embodied Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. In one sense, the kingdom was all the way, already around the time of Abraham. Jesus also spoke of it in the present. For he said in Luke chapter 17, verse 21, the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, Jesus was saying, I am the kingdom. I am the kingdom. But he also spoke of it still in the future. Because right here he's saying, pray, kingdom come. Pray that the kingdom comes. Now, how can the kingdom be already in the past, here in the present, and yet still needs to come in some sense in the future? What is this kingdom? This kingdom that is in every tense. Well, the Jews had an idea. At the time of Jesus, the Jews had an idea. They thought the kingdom was political, right? That's what they thought. They thought the kingdom was going to be something like King David riding in, on his horses and with his army and they'd knock off the Romans and the Jews would live happily ever after with their political kingdom. They were looking for an earthly king. So what kind of kingdom is Jesus talking about when he speaks of it past, present, and yet still future? Well, first of all, there's two elements I think that we can easily see in scripture. There's the universal kingdom and then the earthly kingdom. We're just going to lightly touch this because this is a big topic, but one covers the, the whole universe, and one is related to the earth. So let's just start quickly with the universal kingdom. Now, we would all agree that God now and always has ruled the entire universe, right? Everyone would agree with that. I mean, he created it. He controls it. He orders it. He holds it all together. Uh, what Scottish theologian James Orr writes, quote, there is therefore recognized in scripture a natural and a universal kingdom or dominion of God embracing all objects, persons, events, all doings of individuals, nations we see, all operations and changes of nature and history, absolutely without exception, end quote. And he's right. The scriptures declare this, don't they? For example, a, a praise of David in Psalm 145 verse 13 says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. Psalm 103 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. But I think... Um, First Chronicles chapter, uh, verse, uh, chapter 29, verse 11 through 12, really sums up God's universal kingdom in, in, in breathtaking words for us. This is, this is David's praise to God. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come for you, and you reign over all. How awesome is our God? He is the universal king, and he mediates this through the rulership of his son, 
Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 says, for him, speaking of Christ, for him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities and powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is, speaking of Christ, before all things and in him all things consist. So, so God is the universal king. He mediates it through the Son of God who rules and is given the right to judge and to reign. No one would argue that. That is crystal clear. Now, that's the, that's the universal kingdom. Now, look back at our prayer in verses 9 and 10 for a second. Notice what Jesus calls us to pray. He says, this is how you should be praying. And not necessarily word for word. There's nothing wrong for it word for word. But this is the, the idea here. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's um, essentially what's called a Hebrew parallelism. <laughs> and I think we just simply look at this and take the first part, add it to the second part, and we get a sense of what the Lord wants us to pray. Now, is God's name hallowed in heaven? Yeah, right? His name is hallowed in heaven. You bet it is. Is God's will being done in heaven? Yep, sure. Yes, it is. Absolutely. So then what is he asking here? That it be established where? On the earth. On the earth. That's the essence of our prayer. The point is this, beloved. The universal kingdom in heaven is already established. Nothing there to, nothing there to worry about. Ruling and reigning. Everything perfect. All glory and honor and praise and worship. 24-7. The prayer is, let it come to the earth. Let it come to the earth, this one little speck of sand in this infinite universe spinning around that, that rebels against the holy God. Let it be brought into harmony, into your rule and your reign. What we're praying here is, as, oh God, stop the rebellion. Ensnare the devil. Turn around that you may be reigning here as you are reigning there. Although his name is hallowed in heaven, it isn't always hallowed here on earth. Although his will is done in heaven, in this sense, it's not always being done on earth. There's a rebellion. And although his kingdom has come in heaven, it has not yet come to its fullness on earth. The purpose then of the prayer is to bring his kingdom to earth. We're praying the kingdom of God comes to earth. That he might put down sin, that he might put away the rebellion that he would put away all evil and that he might bring God's hallowed name and God's kingdom and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know, it's wonderful to think about because it's going to happen. It's going to happen exactly this way. And when it does happen, there won't be any more distinguishings between the universal and the earthly. This will blend into his eternal and perfect reign. So, the kingdom is Christ's rule on the earth. That's what we're praying for. We're not praying your kingdom come universally. He already reigns forever universally. We're praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying. Oh Lord, the earth is our preoccupation. Um, bring the fullness of your rule here. Now, let me ask you a question. Does this world need the, the rule of Jesus Christ? Yes, it does. Let me ask you another one. Is there a day coming when there's going to be a perfect rule of God on earth? Yes. He's going to rule it with a rod of iron. There is coming a day in the future where he will rule and reign when our prayers will fully and ultimately be finally answered. And I believe in a literal thousand year reign. That Revelation chapter 20 talks about. That Satan will be bound up, locked up. And Jesus will rule perfectly on the earth. I believe in that. And I believe that when that comes into completion, we'll move right into the eternal state, a new heaven and a new earth. And that becomes one eternal state where we're finally face to face. Face to face with our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ, for all of eternity. 
No more tears, beloved. No more tears. And let me close with this, and because and, this is the heart of the matter. How does it come? When we're talking about this kingdom, it, it says in, in, in verse 10 there, pray your kingdom, but how does it come? Do we have anything to do with it? How is this prayer answered? I've hinted at it, but let me just give you a couple of quick ways. Number one, God's kingdom comes through an invitation. Through an invitation. I think this is a, a missionary prayer. I think this is a, an evangelism kind of prayer. I'll tell you one thing. Christ reigns in my life. Does he reign in your life? In that sense, he's brought his rule to earth, right? We see in Luke 17, God said, the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, oh, here it is, or, or there it is. He says, don't look, don't look here and there. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Where? He was standing right there. <laughs> and they didn't even recognize it. Jesus is the kingdom. And you will never separate him from his kingdom. That's why the, uh, the stone that smites the image uh, becomes the kingdom. And fills the whole earth that, that Daniel sees of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. Christ ruling and reigning in my life brings his reign to this earth and he mediates his kingdom through every believer. I mean, isn't that incredible? That's why in Revelation 1 the Bible says he has made us all kings and priests. God, God literally uh, mediates his kingdom through the believer as he reigns in my life and in yours. Each one of us is a, is a, a dot of the kingdom on the globe of earth. So to pray your kingdom come is to pray that he may take up his reigning and residence in the hearts and in the lives of those who are still yet in rebellion. It's a prayer of salvation. I believe the Christmas carol had it right. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Now, we normally think of Bethlehem, don't we, when we hear that, but that isn't what the hymn writer had in mind. Let earth receive her king. How? Let every heart do what? Prepare his room. Prepare his room. And heaven and nature sing. He is the king of the hearts. That's his kingdom. That's his reign. That's his place of rule. And that's where he takes up residence in the heart. So the kingdom of God begins then with the invitation. If Christ is going to reign in the earth, it begins with the invitation. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 2, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. But Jesus said they were not willing to come. In verse 4, so again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened cattle are killed. And all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they too made light of it. So then the king says, go out into all the highways. Run out into the roads. And as many as you can find, invite them to my son's wedding. In other words, there is an invitation to my kingdom. It's here. I want you to come. I want you to come. Do you see how this prayer is first and foremost focused on God? That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. When our prayers are God-focused, mind, he will take care of the rest. He will. But when I just jump in and go, I, 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 me, 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 my, 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 God is going, Nick, I know what you need. I'll take care of it. I'm faithful. But go do this. Go tell the people. I'll provide. There's a kingdom of God in him. I ought to go seek that first. And then lastly, I believe the kingdom comes by what I like to call responding to the, to the royalty of Christ. What if I'm already a Christian? How does the invitation or this prayer apply to me? Just this way, folks. He is Lord and, and he is ruling. But I think there 
is in the Christian life a time daily, anytime, to affirm that. We bow the knee, stand up, sit down, eyes open, eyes closed, on the floor, face down, whatever. Where I say, you are Lord over my life. I need to do this daily. And, you know, I come to all sorts of these crossroads in my life where I want to choose to do my will and not your will. and My way, not his way. And inevitably, I'm pulled both ways. But when I confirm and I commit myself to, to your cases and your kingdom, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and not my own kingdom. I go his way. It's in the heart of the believer where we submit and commit ourselves constantly to the, to the submission of his lordship. I think this is what Paul meant in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. And he's writing this to Christians. He said, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is not something that's done on the, on the outside. The kingdom of God is something that's internal. Listen to him. He said, the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. And so, if the kingdom is to come into my life, I can pray as a Christian, O oh Lord, make me righteous as Christ. Conform me to the image of the Son. O oh Lord, fill me with your blessed peace. O oh Lord, uh, I want to know the fullness and joy of the Holy Spirit in my life today. And as I give myself over to the virtues that the Spirit wants to produce in my life, I'm asking for that fullness of Christ to reign and be made manifest in me. Let them see you, Lord. Let them see you. So while I'm here, Lord, use me for your glory. Use me for your kingdom. While I'm also praying what John did at the end of the book of Revelation. He says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, even so what? Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord. That's part of our prayer too, isn't it? <laughs> come quickly. We're praying not only that his reign would come into the hearts of lives who people that don't know him, that our hearts take for, but we're also praying too that Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. Break the tyranny of sin and that brokenness forever. Come quickly, Lord. If you have prayers today, the Lord has spoken to you today and moved your heart in any way or has called on you or you've believed in a false gospel or a different Jesus or you're confused over who God is or you need prayers to be uplifted today, please come forward. And the rest of you, please stand and sing as we sing a final time, Blessed Be Your Name. <laughs>